Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Thank you for praying for me while I was preaching in the state of Maine. We had a great meeting. Um, you know, I always like to try to give the gospel to people on the airplane, and I mentioned in the Sunday school hour that uh, I gave the gospel to a guy named Derek. Play for, pray for Derek. I think that he is going to come to know the Lord as his Savior. On the second flight on the way home, uh, the second leg of the flight, I was flying next to this lady. She asked me, uh, young young lady, and she works for a human. She works for an aerospace company, and she uh, works in human resources. She asked what I do, and I said I'm a pastor. And she said, "Well, are you doing something up there for that in Maine?" And I said, "Yes." I, I said, "Yes." I was speaking at a missions conference. She said, "What was your topic?" <laughs> well, missions, and uh, <laughs> so what, the reason that she was asking was her parents were missionaries with Campus Crusade in Ukraine. So that's where she had grown up. So it was, she was asking specifics about what, what portion of missions, and so it was church planting. And so we had a good conversation. But she is a part of kind of the, the newer uh, wing of Christianity, and she's very nice. She was just so sweet and nice. And so we were talking about ministry, and I told her about man camp. And... Uh, <laughs> Greatest question ever asked, okay? The greatest question ever asked. Do you talk about feelings at man camp? <laughs> I laughed for a whole day after that. And I tried, you know, I want to be nice to her. She was just, a, just the kindest young lady. And I said, well, we haven't yet. But, uh, and so she had, but she had talked about this video that her and her boyfriend had watched, or a, a documentary called The Faces We Wear, and how there are certain emotions that are unacceptable for boys. And, um, and I couldn't help it. I said, I said, well, I don't think that masculinity among young men is the greatest problem we have in America right now. And it's interesting how in Christianity, the things that are being focused on... They just have nothing to do with eternity. And now there are other things that are important. So the church that she goes to, she goes to a church in Cincinnati that focuses on generational... Their their focus is reconciliation, generational reconciliation, racial reconciliation, economic reconciliation. She said, what's the focus of your church? I said, the gospel. The gospel. The preaching of the Word of God, making disciples. And, you know, we, we were able to get into some really deep discussions about the problems in the world. And she said, well, there really is, you know, economic, there are issues, you know, with oppressed peoples. And so she brought up social justice. And I said, well, there's no such thing as social justice in the Bible. There's just justice and you don't want it. Right? Because if we all got justice, we'd go to hell. So we want mercy. <laughs> we want grace. And she said, well, there are oppressed people, and we as Christians need to address that with oppressed people. And I said, there are certainly oppressed people groups in the world. The problem is those that are identified as oppressed people groups in the United States, is there any agreement on who the oppressors are? So how do you address that? How do you fix that? Well, the primary way you fix it is you preach the gospel to people and you get them a biblical worldview. And then you start understanding individual accountability, individual responsibility, private property rights, uh, personal behavior and choices that bring glory to God. And then you get those leaders, those people in leadership, and they govern righteously. 
So the answer is not politics. The answer is the gospel, and we preach the gospel, and God transforms lives through the gospel, and we make disciples, and we establish people in the truth of the Word of God. And that's how ministry is done. But because we are, we are trying to focus on all of these isms and all of these issues that are going on in the world, the work of Christ remains undone. The work of the gospel remains undone. And it, it is such a wonderful thing to know that regardless of what happens in the world, our job has not changed. We are to preach the gospel, lead people to Christ, baptize them into a local church, disciple them and send them out to do it again. That is the heartbeat and the core of the church. Now, in that, can we learn things about the culture? Can we study things about the culture? Can we learn how to be more effective with an individual people group? Absolutely. But if we focus on the people group, we'll lose the Bible. We don't know what those people need until we meet with God and find out what God says all people need. And so it's vital that we understand that. So interesting conversations while I was there. And I want to, while I was in Maine, so many things happened, and I'm going to tell you about them, Lord willing, in this message. But here was the thought that I kept having while I was there. So it was a church planting conference, uh, and I was the speaker for that. And um, it was a missions conference with an emphasis on church planting. And then we went to a pastor's fellowship on Tuesday that was just fantastic. And then I spoke in their school on Wednesday. Um, imagine this. The preacher asked me to speak at the school about the history of the Bible. Now, you know, those kids were just so excited to hear that. But we ended up having a good time. It was fun. Um, but to see what God is doing all over the state of Maine. Now, how many of you have never been to Maine? You've never been to the state of Maine. It's hard to understand how depressed it is economically. Um, the there, there's just not a lot of businesses there, but there are a lot of people there. There are 1.3 million people who live in the state of Maine. So there are more people in Columbus than there are in Maine. Isn't that interesting? And they're spread out all over, and they need the gospel. And the preacher that I was preaching for, his name is Todd Bell, and I want to get him down here for you to meet him. Just a, an interesting man. But So while I was there... This message kept coming to my mind. The first time I preached it here was in November 15th, 1998. How many of you have come to the church since 1998? You've come to the church. This, for those who were here for over those next five years, the message I'm going to preach now, Lord willing, was um, really the heartbeat of who we are and what we're doing. And the Lord just impressed me. It's time to preach this again. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I want to dive in. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. And I'm so thankful that you, you give us the gift of faith according to Ephesians 2.8. And that, the faith, it's not of yourselves. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And Lord, thank you for giving us the gift of faith. And Lord, we have young people here who are growing up around the things of God. We have people who attend and who serve here who are around the things of God often. And Lord, there's a great warning that we need, and I pray that we'll receive that from your word today. But Lord, most of all, I pray that you're glorified and you're pleased by what happens. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 6, look at verse 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country. So that's Nazareth. He came, he came back to where he was raised uh, humanly. And his disciples follow him. So there are a couple of things that I want you to see here. First of all, this is a great definition of discipleship. A disciple is one who follows Christ. 
That's what a disciple is. There are people who call themselves disciples of Christ, but their ministry, the things that, are, that they are doing, they simply are not following Jesus Christ in that ministry. So they might be disciples, they're just not disciples of Christ. Is that, is that fair? And so when we study the Scriptures, we find out what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The first time Jesus came back to His own town to preach is in Luke chapter 4. So put a marker in Mark 6, and let's go to Luke chapter 4. And look at what it says in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of Him through all the region round about. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and as His custom was, He went into the synagogue. Now, how many of you believe that, um, we, that, that the goal of the Christian life is Christ-likeness. How many of you agree with that? In the overflow, say amen. That the goal of the Christian life is Christ-likeness. And so we see here that the habit of Jesus Christ, His custom was that He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So for us as Christians, our habit ought to be to come to the Lord's house on Sunday. All right, and that's why we do that. We wear to be like Christ. Now, let me just be very clear. I don't have time to preach it, but Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. The Bible says Jesus Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. We come to church on Sunday because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. And we remember His resurrection. Anybody glad He rose from the dead? Are you glad for that today? <laughs> me too. And so that's why we come to the church on Sunday. It's not the Christian Sabbath. All right, next. We'll go back to verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, went, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and that's Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then look at these next few words. And he closed the book. Do you see that? And he closed the book. If you don't have it marked yet, mark that. And he closed the book. That's one of the most important clauses in the Bible for you and me. It is really a good thing that he closed the book right there. And here's why. Keep your place in Luke 4. I know I've got you keeping Mark 6. Now you're going to keep Luke 4. And uh, this is why you need multiple ribbons or many fingers. Go to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. Let's see why it is wonderful that Jesus Christ closed the book at that particular place. Isaiah 61, the Spirit, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to them that are bound. Now, remember, this is the passage that Jesus Christ is reading in Luke chapter 4. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and he closed the book. Look at what was coming if he hadn't closed the book. And the day of the vengeance of our God. The day of the vengeance of our God. If Jesus Christ 
had kept reading, then the judgment of God would have come on the world at that moment. Aren't you glad he closed the book? Amen. Go back to Luke chapter 4. And look, this is such an amazing thing. Back in Luke 4, remember he closed the book at that spot. He didn't preach the, 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 the day of the vengeance of our God. The day of the vengeance of our God. He did not preach that. All right, now let's go back to Luke 4, verse 20. Verse 19, for the context again, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, look, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Imagine if he proclaimed that this day was the day of the vengeance of our God. Now, would Jesus have been right to declare the day of the vengeance of our God on that day where he is speaking? Would he have been right to do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. The only thing any of us have earned is the day of the vengeance of our God. Do you all agree with that? And it's so important that we get that. The fact that we get to sit here at Grace Baptist Church today in padded chairs, in air conditioning, with lights, comfortable, free, happy, able to go and get a meal here in a couple of hours when I'm done. The only reason that we're able to do that is because of the grace and mercy of Almighty God and that He has withheld the day of His vengeance. So now... Jesus is announcing himself as the Messiah. This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Do you see that it says that? Verse 22, uh, verse 21, And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now look, And all that bear him witness, or and all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Now look at this. What is Jesus doing? He has just read the scripture. He said, This day it's fulfilled in your ears. And they're all saying, This is so nice. This is nice. We're having a nice service in a nice synagogue among nice people. Isn't this nice? That's what's happening. It's a love fest. Everyone take your neighbor by the hand and let's all sing. I'd like to teach the world to sing. And so what happens is if you don't keep reading, you think that's what's happening. All right. But then look at what happens. But I tell you of a truth. Verse 25. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout the land, throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent. So Elijah wasn't sent to a Jewish lady, save unto Sarepta, a city in Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman, a Syrian. So, he's saying non-Jews. Look at verse 28. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. Where'd Kumbaya go? And rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereupon or whereon their city was built 
that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. So Jesus Christ, he told them, look, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears, but I am going to reach Gentiles as well as Jews, and God has a plan for the Gentiles. And the Jews didn't want to hear it, and so they were going to kill him for saying that in the synagogue. That's the first reception Jesus Christ got back. Now, I want you to imagine, go back to Mark chapter 6. It is such an interesting thing. The Bible says it was his custom. Can you picture a little toddler Jesus, three years old, toddling down the aisles of the synagogue? He grew up there. They knew him. This was their home. There in Capernaum, you can actually visit a synagogue and the foundation of that synagogue, it's the synagogue that Jesus preached at in Capernaum. You can go there and stand there and walk there. This stuff happened in history. It's an amazing thing. But imagine Jesus Christ, they had seen him all of his life, and now he's traveling around preaching, and he's doing many wonders and many miracles, and people are imagining, is this that Jesus? So Mark chapter 6, verse 2. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. So this is the second time he's come back to his home synagogue in Nazareth. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Look, from whence hath this man these things? You know what this reminds me of? I was preaching in Columbus at a church. This is five years ago, maybe. And so there is a, a, a lady there that was a friend of my sister's in Bible college. My sister's three years older than I am. So I was Jimmy. I was the little brother coming to school. All right? So she knew me when I was 18. So here I am. This is a time I'm 48 years old. I've been pastoring for 20 years, either assistant pastor or pastor. And I'm preaching. And I got done. And listen to what she said. She walked up to me. The first thing she said to me was, I don't remember you being this smart. I was 18. Who's smart when they're 18? You know, it's just a skull full of mush that had yet to be molded into something solid. How many of you are under 18? Would you raise your hands? You're under 18. You know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> it was so funny. Now, now, let's be very careful. I am not comparing myself to the wisdom that Jesus Christ had when he was preaching. All right? You get that. But that idea of profit is not without honor... You know, you'll see some. Yeah, I remember him, some preacher. I, yeah, I remember when him was little. You should, you wouldn't believe the. Way. We all have to grow up, right? How many of you did something as a child that you don't want to have define your life? Would you raise your hands? It would be better if that did not define your life. Man, I've got so many of those things. One time, my my, my friend had a Honda one twenty five dirt bike. And he asked me if I knew how to ride. And of course, yes. He said, okay, all you have to do, give it some gas and let out the clutch. So I gave it gas, popped that clutch, shot straight across the street into a ditch and trashed his brand new Honda 125. Can you imagine if that guy saw me? Don't ever let that guy drive your car. Don't let that guy ride your motorcycle. One time, I, when my senior year of high school, they had a bowling team. And they said, do you want to be on the bowling team? And I said, sure. Have you bowled before? Yeah. What's your average? I didn't even know what average was. I knew that 300 was good. And I knew I wasn't very good. So I said, 185. 
And they thought, awesome. So they put me on the front row. First match, I go out there, 58. <laughs> Can you imagine if somebody who knew me in my senior year of high school, what do you think of Jim Alter? Man, he lies about his bowling score. He's terrible. Aren't you glad that all of us have opportunity to grow and to learn and we're not identified by those things that happen to us Imagine if all of us had been defined by things that we did when we were young. You ready for the amazing thing? Jesus could have been. How about that? Jesus could have been. He was always perfect. He was always righteous. He was always holy. He was always kind. He was always forgiving. He was always responsible. He always cared for everything that he was to care for. And they were still contemptible of him. Look at what the text says. And when the Sabbath day was come, verse 2, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Now look at the question they ask. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and of Joseph, and of Judah, and of Simon? Now, this is very important. I want you to see this. How many of you are told that Mary was a perpetual virgin? She never had any other children. Who are these brothers then? Who are these sisters? You see, I want you to understand, I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just reading the Bible to you. Somebody's been telling you something that's not true about the Bible. Amen? It's really important that you see that. So his brothers and sisters are there. And then look at what it says. And they were offended at him. They were offended at him. I want to talk to you this morning about the process of unbelief, the process of unbelief. And what ends up happening is if you look at verse 6, the Bible says, uh, verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work. Do you see that? He could there do no mighty work. How is it that Jesus Christ, they have seen him, they know who he is, and yet there is so much unbelief that he could there do no mighty work. How does that happen? I want to preach to you today on the process of unbelief. The first thing that I want you to see is familiarity. Familiarity. They thought they knew him. They thought they knew him. Do you know one of the big things that happens with people is they confuse the forms of Christianity with the reality of Christianity. You know, there are people that take communion and they think that'll take them to heaven. They get baptized and they think that'll take them to heaven. They come to the church service and they think that doing a religious exercise will somehow maintain their relationship with Jesus Christ. They confuse the form with the reality. And these people knew Jesus Christ. They knew his family. And they didn't think there was any way that he could be the Messiah. Do you know what happens? There are a lot of people, young people, you come to church, your parents bring you to church. They raise you in a Christian home. You see things all the time that pertain to Christianity. You coming to church does not make you a Christian. You having parents who are Christians does not make you a Christian. What makes a person a Christian is a personal faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sacrifice being applied to their account individually. That's where it begins. And every person, there must be a point in time where they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal life. It is not a process. 
How many of you ladies have, have given birth? Would you raise your hands? You ladies, you've had children. How many of you are glad that it was not a 10-year process? <laughs> right? Labor for 10 years. Now, I know some of you with your kids, it feels like it has been that. But the birth itself was not 10 years. You're born, and then spiritually you are born again. It happens at a point in time, and Jesus Christ said, you must be born again. That is where Christianity begins. That's where your walk with the Lord begins. But the problem is, you come to church, and what we do at church is we... We get together and we have our classes and it's from kindergarten on up and you have your individual classes and pre-K and all of those things. And then you come into the service and we're going to sing for a little while. We're going to have some announcements. We're going to take an offering and then Brother Jim's going to preach and then we're going to pray and then we're going to go eat. And in some cases, you have roast preacher for lunch. I hope not. What's so funny are the people, it's not funny, it's sad that, that... criticize, they say Pastor Nathan to their kids constantly, and then the kids get in trouble, and then you bring them to Pastor Nathan to correct the problem. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Amen? Don't do that. Because what happens is the same thing that happened in this text. Familiarity. Now, you know the statement, familiarity breeds contempt. How many of you have heard that before? But there's one old preacher who said, familiarity breeds contempt only among contemptible things or contemptible people. See, I, I know Laura better now than I did when we got married. And I love her more. So that familiarity doesn't breed contempt, it breeds love. And with Jesus Christ, the more you know Jesus Christ, the more you get to know Jesus Christ, the greater your awe, the greater your respect, the greater your love, the greater your service. So familiarity with Jesus does not breed contempt, but familiarity with the forms of Christianity can breed contempt if you think that's all there is. Have you ever heard this? I brought him to church. Not serving God today. I brought him to church. Well, if bringing him to church was the full extent of his relationship with Jesus Christ, there's other things you could do that are more fun. There's other things you could do more enjoyable. But if you love Jesus, there's nothing you can do that feeds your soul more than to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word because it's all about Him. And so familiarity, they thought they knew Him. You can confuse the forms with the reality. But you know what else you can do is you can forget about the reality that was once there. How many of you, somewhere in your past, God did something amazing for you? Would you raise your hands? Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember? Uh, I could, this week, I was in, while well, I was in Maine, there was a man, I was sitting where they, they would feed us at the church before the service, the whole church. And so I was sitting there with the pastor, and this guy, kind of rough looking guy, comes in, and he said, You see that guy right there? I said, Yeah. He said, last Saturday, we were out on bus visitation, and bus visitation is you get a bus, and you fill up a bus with kids, and you bring them to church. We use the vans for that. And so he was, this pastor is teaching his assistant pastor how to have a bus route. And they had taken the bus out, and so the bus is parked there, and they're inviting people to come and get on the bus the next day for church. And this rough-looking guy comes running across the yard, across a park-type area running straight at him, full speed. And the preacher's thinking, what in the world is going on? And so to defuse the situation, he went, hey, I know you. 
guy said, no, you don't. Yeah, I know you. I, I know you. You don't know me. And the guy started weeping. He said, see that bus? When I was six years old, I rode a bus just like that. And I went to church and I got saved. And you know what? I got away from it. My life was a mess and I'm trying to get straightened out. Can I ride that bus? He was there last Sunday. And then he was there Monday night. And that's when he was pointed out to me. It's either that night or the next night. I was giving my testimony about my dad being a church planter. And I said, my dad started Faith Baptist Church in Wallingford, Connecticut. And I see this guy squirreling around. He's trying to get somebody to talk to. He came up to me afterwards. He rode our bus to church 41 years ago and got saved. And he's there at that church being grounded, growing in the Lord, wanting to serve the Lord. But you know, when I was a kid and I had to clean that bus and I had to help work on that bus, mom had gotten a small inheritance from an aunt that died and they used it to buy and remodel a church building and put money into that. Here's a young man that got saved. And 41 years later, in tears, is saying, thank you. Thank you. Dad's in heaven. Dad's in heaven. His time for ministry is gone. I'm so glad that he was willing to do what God wanted him to do. What an amazing thing. That next day, Tuesday morning, I'm at the pastor's fellowship, and they asked me to um, talk about the ministry, the Ancient Baptist Press, the journal, the, the work that we're doing here at Grace Baptist, and talk about church planting. So I was talking about my father started the church in Syracuse, New York, Liverpool, Buckley Road Baptist Church. And there's a guy in the back. He's going like this. And I thought he's saying amen or something. And he said, I got saved at that church. His parents went to that church when he was six years old. He's been in it ever since until he went into the ministry. He's an assistant pastor. He's 35 years old. He's an assistant pastor in Maine now because God used my father to go and plant a church in Syracuse, New York. There's another preacher. He's from Tennessee. He's a retired pastor. Got tired of being retired, and he went up and started a church in Maine, 65 years old. Started a church. His name's Steve Grubbs. And he's praying and praying and praying for a song for a piano player because he can't sing very well and hard to have church without music, right? So he's praying for a piano player, praying for a piano player. There's a couple that uh, the Lord allowed us, Laura and I, to influence in my time up in Maine. And one of the times I was up there preaching, he brought his new wife to the meeting and Laura led her to the Lord. And now this couple is at that church and she's playing the piano for them and Seth is leading the singing. And see, that part of it, that couldn't have happened if you all didn't support me to go and preach in these other places that need instruction. And one of those times, Laura had the opportunity to lead this young lady to the Lord. Oh, and his assistant, the person that's helping him, is Raul Pinto. You all got to meet Raul. Raul, one day, a friend brought him to our church, and that's when the church was in Connecticut was still in our house. And my dad sat on the couch with him in our living room and led Raul to the Lord as a teenage boy. He basically grew up in our home. He travels now with Spanish-speaking ministry, leads the singing and crusades around the world. And when he's not doing that, he's helping this little church in Maine where Steve Grubbs went to start it. And I helped a young man get come back to the Lord, and Laura led his wife to the Lord. And All that happened just this week. 
I'm up there, and it's just, it's just amazing to see what happened. And I'm so thankful that I didn't get so familiar with the forms that I missed the reality. I'm so thankful that God protected me from that and that there's still a zeal and a passion in my heart to serve the Lord. Was there ever a time in your life God had done something great? I've just described to you some of the great things that God did. Has there ever been a time when God did something great in your life and you remember what it feels like for that to happen? I'm just telling you, when all this is going on, I'm sitting there just praising God, saying, I can't believe all of this. Personal connections. I can't believe it. I don't want that to go away, folks. How's your passion for the Lord? How is your zeal for the Lord? Unbelief. Unbelief. The process of unbelief. The first thing that God does is He brings us to Himself. And then we get involved in ministry. And then familiarity comes. But there's a problem that comes from that familiarity. And it is unbelief. Look at what the Bible says in verse 3. Is not this the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. They were offended at him. What does that mean? They stumbled over him. They, they, they said, we're not going to believe because we think we know him. It would not be too terrible to become familiar with the forms if that was all that happened to you. But what happens is you stop believing. You stop believing. How many of you know people that used to go to church and now they're, they're away from the Lord? They used to go to church and they're away from the Lord. Look, what happens there? What happens to where that fire is quenched to where they no longer care about the things of God? Because when people think that they've gotten everything they can out of Christianity and that this is it, the church service is it. You know, there are young people bored right now. They're walking out of the room. Just bored. Got to go potty. And what happens is people start to think that things are not, that what's going on here, it's just a ritual. It's okay. It's all right. And it becomes so secondary that it's not important. Folks, what we're doing right now is vital. Hearing about the Word of God, worshiping together, supporting one another in ministry, holding each other accountable. It is vital. And the world is getting worse and worse and worse. There's an entire movement that's called deconversion. Deconversion. There are websites about it, and it's, it's the process of teaching people how to let go of everything that they've been taught about Christianity. There are people making a concerted effort to undermine everything that we believe and teach and that you're trying to establish in your home and in your life. And there's a process. And listen, folks, if you don't have a personal walk with the Lord, if you don't have a personal relationship, if you're not actively involved in ministry and in spreading the word, what happens is you just become familiar with it. And that leads to unbelief. And that's what happened here. They didn't believe in Jesus. They were offended over Him at what He was doing. The familiarity with Him caused them to question His power. Do you see what it says in verse 2? Verse middle of the verse, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given? They begin questioning. Where did that truth come from? Why is that important? Tonight, I hope you'll come back. I want you to see how this process of unbelief is affecting churches. How many of you have heard of Andy Stanley? 
You heard Andy Stanley, Charles Stanley's son? I'm going to show you clips from a sermon he preached about six weeks ago. And it starts with this. He shows a picture of Jesus loves me, this I know. He said, that's the beginning of the problem. You're relying too much on the Bible. You're not going to believe it. I hope that you'll all come back. I really do. I hope that you'll all come back to see it. Because this process of unbelief is not only impacting individual believers, it's impacting entire ministries. He has 40,000 people on different campuses that come to hear him every week and to hear him say that you don't need the Bible. you got to see that tonight. This process of unbelief, it causes people to question, where did he get this power from? Where did it come from? Do you know, there? if you look at verse 4 again, but Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own, what does it say? Kin and in his own house. In his own house. You know, some of you, you have children that don't believe and they don't honor you in your own house. Is that, is that painful? It's horribly painful. Many of you, you're saved and you have family members that don't believe. They don't believe. They're not interested. And they mock you and your faith. That's horrible. It's horrible. That happened to Jesus Christ. Remember the old song, No One Understands Like Jesus? No one understands like Jesus. There's a passage in the Bible where Jesus Christ is preaching and His family comes to Him and there's such a crowd, they can't get to Him and they send Him a note. They send Jesus a note. And the note says, Your brethren are here. And he said, who are my brethren? But those that keep my commandments, that hear my words, keep my commandments. Do you know why they wanted to get him? Because they said he is beside himself. They wanted to lay hold on him physically and drag him back to the house. Listen, because Jesus Christ's own family thought he was crazy. How about you? How about you? When you take a stand for the Lord, when you give to the Lord's work, when you realize what God is doing and you start speaking about it and your family says, you're nuts. Do you know what? You're in good company. The same thing happened to Jesus Christ. And so we need to make sure that our families represent what happens here. Our homes represent and reflect what happens here. So our kids don't see one thing at home and something else at church and start saying, well, that's, that's hypocritical. My parents don't really believe what goes on here. And then they stumble, and it causes trouble. The familiarity, or the unbelief that flows from familiarity. Their familiarity caused him to question, caused them to question his power. Someone said they took apart the violin looking for the music. Jesus Christ was more than a man. He's the Son of God, the God-man. And I want you to look at something. Look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Do you see that? That was blasphemy. That son of Mary, they're saying that he's a bastard. They're saying that, that Joseph wasn't, his, wasn't Jesus' father. He's the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. Now, we know he wasn't the son of Joseph. He's the son of God. But see, here in this context, they're mocking him. It's a, it's a horrible scene. And that's exactly what happens with young Christians. They, they go to school or they go to university. They go on the Internet and they start hearing things that attack the Word of God. And they start saying, well, Jesus Christ isn't really God. Look at what they did. Look at Mark chapter 3.
Look at what it says in verse 21. And friends, this is his family, and when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. He is beside himself. In another passage in Mark, they say that Jesus Christ is casting, casting out demons in the power of Satan. And what happens is young people, they start seeing everything that's going on in the world. They want what the world has to offer them. And they know, they know from the preaching of the Word of God that you're not supposed to have a relationship with the opposite sex outside of marriage. That's what the Bible says. Amen? They know that you're to give your life to Christ. They know that your, that your priority in your life needs to be God and worship of Him. But when you want the world more than God, then what happens is you start attacking the Bible. They start attacking Christ. And the next thing you know, they're infidels. Bible's not true. God's not true. Creation's not true. Everything you're saying is a lie. How many of you know young people that that's happened to? You know that. And listen, that process of unbelief, it's not because they got tired of the church service. It's because they don't know Jesus Christ. Remember, unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. See, we know this because we can answer the intellectual's attacks. We know where the truth is. Amen? We know that you have a faith-based view of the Scripture and a faith-based view of life. But what they say is, well, I don't want faith. I want science. And so they believe in the beginning there was nothing and then it exploded. Which takes more faith to believe than there's a God who created it. And they start having faith in infidelity, and we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they start saying, I want facts, I want facts, I want facts, well, we can answer the facts. Amen? But when we do, and that's not enough, then the problem is not an intellectual problem, it's a spiritual problem. And people stumble over Jesus Christ all the time. Do you know for that a person, a young person that grows up at Grace Baptist Church can still go to hell? Let me say that again. A young person that grows up at Grace Baptist Church can still go to hell. But you have to go past an awful lot of love, an awful lot of investment, an awful lot of teaching, an awful lot of the gospel, an awful lot of truth. You have to step over an awful lot of the grace of God in order to go to hell. And if you do, you can never look back at Grace Baptist Church or anyone in here and say, you didn't tell me. Because we're telling you over and over and over and over again. And when the trappings of ministry become so familiar that you can sing the songs without looking at the screen, when you know what's going to come in the sermon next, you'll be able to know here in a little while when pastor's almost done and I can go eat. And you'll stop railing on me. You know all of those things. But it's the relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing. What is this process of unbelief? People become familiar with the forms. And that leads to unbelief. And do you know what's amazing? I think that in most good Bible preaching churches like ours, and there are many of them around the world, that there are a lot of people in, sitting in the chairs, in the pews, that have stopped believing. Let me ask you a question. What have you stopped trusting God for? What have you given up on? What have you said it'll never happen here? 
Have you become one of those people, you know, with the rain cloud over your head? It'll never work. We're doomed. We're doomed. Don't build a building. We have enough. Brother Ferrier, I was talking to Brother Ferrier on the phone. He said, I'm going to stop coming to church. There's too many young people there. (laughs) And then he said, it's wonderful. Isn't it awesome to see these kids, young families, along with those who bring the wisdom and godliness of years and years and years of service? That's what a healthy church is. That's what it's about. But there are people, that, that unbelief, that, oh, we don't need to do that. We don't, we, it's been good enough. We've never done that before. Man, every church planter or every person that takes a young church or a church that's been established, this is what I hear. Man, Brother Jim, how do I do this? We started this ministry, and people keep saying, we've never done it that way before. <laughs> how many of you ever heard something like that? Right? Whatever. <laughs> Man, I heard that. We don't hear that too much anymore. Man, we heard that so much. We heard that so much. And here's the deal. I'm so thankful that there were a group of people here at Grace Baptist Church that said God's not done here. There's more to do. There's a future here. There's a future here. There's folks all over this room that were a part of that. Do you know what happened? They, they didn't get familiar with the forms. Uh, our friend, I better not say it because you might meet some other people, but we have a, a church that we've helped and they're growing and they ran out of room and so they were going to take do like we did and take the pews out and put chairs in so you could fit more people. Man, he had people throwing a fit that they were taking the pews out. Just throwing a fit. He said, Brother Jim, what do I say to them? Here's what I want you to say to them. Understand that you're arguing over furniture. Now, how many of you know there's no such thing as a spirit-filled pew? (laughs) It's furniture. It's furniture. And there are people that will... Imagine this. We fit 50 more people in this room when we went to chairs. We don't need those 50 people. If God wants to save them, He can do it without you. You don't need the chairs. Give me my pew. How many of you think that would probably be a bad attitude? You think that... And now listen, i got to tell you, we didn't have any of that. Isn't that that a blessing? If we did, they didn't say it to me. Maybe because I'd stand up here and say that about them. I don't know. (laughs) Unbelief. How many of you, honestly, be honest, how many of you believe that God has great days ahead for Grace Baptist Church? Do you want great days to be ahead for your children and their children? Young people, do you have a personal relationship and walk with the Lord? Because what happens is you have this process of unbelief. It's familiarity that leads to unbelief. And unbelief in itself wouldn't be so terrible, but unbelief leads to powerlessness. Look at verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hand upon a few sick folk and healed them. See, unbelief leads to powerlessness. Do you know there are churches that never move ahead because there are people in those churches who say, no, we're not going to do that. How about the people? God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. Ten plagues. Crosses the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. As they get to the other side, Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea. God feeds them for 40 years. He feeds them. But before that happened, they got to Kadesh Barnea. They got to the place where they sent the spies in. And remember, 
Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. The others said, there's giants over there. We can't do this. And they didn't believe and they wouldn't go in. So what did God do? He didn't allow any of them to go in. Only Joshua and Caleb. Listen, and the children, those who are under 20 years old when that happened, they were able to go in. The rest of those never got to see the land that flows with milk and honey. They never got to see the wonders that God was going to give them. They never got to live in houses they didn't build. They never got to reap vineyards they didn't plant. They never got to see any of that. Why? Because of their unbelief. Do you know that there are families here? There are families here or in the overflow that will get distracted from the things of God and their children will never be able to see the wonders of God's work because of their unbelief. Because here's the problem. Unbelief leads to powerlessness. How many of you, there's something you need God to do right now? Would you raise your hand? You don't have to say what it is, but there's something you need God to do right now. How's your faith? How's your faith? Because here's what happens. Familiarity leads to unbelief. Unbelief leads to powerlessness. And you ready for this? Powerlessness leads to Christlessness. Look at what happens. Look at verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. He just left. He just left. Now, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ does not owe us anything. You know, when the Holy Spirit left the temple, God wrote Ichabod over the door of the temple, and that means the glory is departed. The glory is departed. And there are churches all over America where Jesus Christ is standing on the outside saying, let me in, let me in. Why? Because when Jesus Christ was working and he was moving up and down the aisles and things were going on, people said, oh, that's just Jesus. That's just Jesus. We're going to do our thing. We're going to do what we want to do. And look at what the Bible says in verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Keep your place in Mark 6. Go to Luke 7. Verse 2. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would become, or that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he would, that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loved our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. For I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my door or under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But I say in a word, and my servant, but, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus, so what is he saying? He's saying, Lord, I'm under authority, and you're the ultimate authority, and whatever you command will happen. Is that what he's saying? Look, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. 
And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. Jesus, you understand Jesus Christ doesn't have to do anything to heal. He can just think it and it will happen. Is that right? But I want you to notice, look at what he said. When Jesus, verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned unto him and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Go back to Mark 6, verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he marveled because of their unbelief. There's only two times in the Bible it says that Jesus Christ marveled. One time where he found faith where it shouldn't have been. And another time where he didn't find faith where it should have been. How's your faith? Are you expecting God to do something amazing for you and your children? Are you expecting God to do something great for Grace Baptist Church? Are you, are you expectant? Are you hopeful for the future? How's your faith? Was there, has there been a time in your life when you had greater faith than you have right now? If there is, then you have begun that process of unbelief. You know, I think of the shooting at Sandy Hook. What a horrible thing that was. And the statement was made, where was God? Where was God? But remember, the school had kicked him out. He wasn't allowed to be there. He wasn't allowed to be there. Go back to Mark 6. I want you to see one thing that's so cool. I love this so much. Mark 6, look at verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Now look, there was no great thing he could do because of the unbelief of the entire community. But there were a couple of people. There's a, there's, there, 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 imagine a, a blind man or a deaf man or a crippled person. And they're watching what everyone else is doing. And they're saying, look, you might not believe in him. You might not believe in him, but I do. Lord Jesus, heal me. Heal me. And I got to tell you, all of Sydney might not believe, but the people in Grace Baptist Church can. All of the world might not believe, but the people here can. The entire world may reject Jesus Christ, but my family can. You know what he did? He couldn't do a mighty work there, but there were a few. There were a minority who said, I believe God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I believe that He is the one. I want to be one of those people. I want to want to be one of those people that if everyone goes away, I will not go away. And listen, I can't do that in my own strength. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the reality of the relationship that I have with Him. Are you on the verge of going away? Are you on the verge of leaving Jesus Christ and everything that He's done? Are you near that? This could be the day where the Lord jerks you back and you realize church isn't about the style of the music. Church isn't about the method of Pastor Jim's preaching. Church, the, the faith isn't about that. It's about a relationship with a risen Savior that loves you and called you and empowers you and gifts you to do His work and to have a passion and a purpose that is so far above and beyond everything that's around us. That is who we are. And I want you to think about something. When my father surrendered to preach and his family disowned him, when he went to New York and we moved into that house and we had no furniture, and I don't know how long, the only furniture in the house were a couple of cots. Mom and dad would sleep on the cots at night. They'd be our, our, our couches during the day. The rest of us would sleep on the floor. 
when we were living on almost nothing, when dad would drive a bus during the day and then go and buy materials and bought an old school building and remodeled it to have church. When he did that and we're just little and we're hungry and we're working hard, we had to plant a garden in back of the church. And I was little and I'd carry the five-gallon buckets of water out to water the garden. I didn't know what was going on. And dad was making a sacrifice to establish a work in Syracuse, New York. I'm glad that he didn't listen to the naysayers that said, it's dead here, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And now millions of dollars have been given to mission. Hundreds of churches have been started because one man said, it doesn't matter what the rest of the world's going to do. It doesn't matter what my family does. It doesn't matter if they don't love me and they cut me off. It doesn't matter. I love Jesus Christ. I know Him. I believe in Him. And there's something special for me. And now here we are, 40 years later. Dad's in heaven. They don't know anything. And the ministry is going on all around the world because someone said, look, there might not be a mighty work here, but I need God. I need this myself. I need it. I have a card in my pocket. I met a preacher this week. His name is John Robbins. He's the pastor of the Harbor Baptist Church in Lewiston, Maine. Little church. He has a passion for the, the down and out. He has a rescue mission. And he, they, they want to just give things to people so they can preach the gospel to them. And there was a company that was selling a warehouse, and they needed room. So this pastor, John Robbins, he goes to meet with the CEO of this corporation and with their attorneys to make an offer on the building. And he said, I don't know how to do this, but I don't have any money. But if you give it to us, I promise you that God will use it to help people. And they said, well, we've never considered anything like this before. And so basically, run along now. A few weeks later, they got a call from the lawyer. This is just a couple of weeks ago. And they said, we, well, we want to go ahead with it. And he said, ahead with what? <laughs> well, the building. But I told you, I, we, we don't have any money. No, no, we want to give you the building. He said, but there's some problems. There's some problems. There's going to be a lot of expense in transferring the title, title search, um, the back, the, the delivery section is crumbling and you have to replace all the steel. All that needs to be done and we can't give it to you like that, so we're going to fix it. <laughs> and they completely repaired it. And when he got to the building to hand over the title, they said, we thought you might need more and they gave him $5,000 to help. And so there was another company, Acorn Shoes. It's out of Columbus, Ohio. And they were closing that plant up there. And they said, here, whatever you need, you can take. So they have stands and tables and furniture and all these things coming in, they took him into another room. And they said, I don't know what you can do with this. And there are 30,000 pair of shoes, something like that, 3,000 pair of shoes. And he said, can you use any of this? He said, yeah. He said, what are you going to do with it? He said, give it away. Are you, what are you going to charge for it? Nothing. We're going to give it away. And this guy said, can I hug you? And he said, no, I'm good. No, I'm going to hug you. <laughs> and they got all these shoes to give away. And what they're able to do now is they have a warehouse full of equipment and full of materials. It was all given to them. And this just happened. He could there do no mighty work. He's doing a mighty work in Lewiston, Maine. It just happened in a dead, depressed area where you'd go there and you'd say, this is the most God-forsaken place in the world. And yet God is working because people are willing to sacrifice and to do without and to believe God. Even if it's for just this place, they're believing God for it. He could there do no mighty work, but He did heal a few sick folk. Do you know what? There are people all around us who need us. 
They need to hear the message that we have. The Bible says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Are you hiding the truth? The Bible says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What is that treasure? It's the glory of God. We have it. And we have to get it out. But listen, if you are on that slide of unbelief, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter. Listen, God's going to do a great work. Just maybe not through you. Wouldn't it be better if you got on board? Wouldn't it be better if you said, Pastor, what's next? (laughs) What are we going to do next? I believe God wants to have a great church in Sydney, Ohio. I believe He's given us one. We're not the only one. There are other wonderful churches around. But I believe that God is doing something special at Grace Baptist Church. Here's the question. Do you believe that? Or is this just church? Yeah. Yeah. Listen. Man, I was so charged up this week when I saw what God has done with my dad. When I see that that ministry, he's gone. He's gone, but the work is still going on because God's method of ministry has not changed. We preach the gospel, we establish churches, we make disciples, we train men, and we send them out, and it's still working today. Amen? Amen. You know what? I'm really thankful that 65 years ago, that Temple Baptist Church in Detroit had a young man named Bill Hovestrite who said, I want to preach, a, I want to start a gospel preaching church in Sydney, Ohio. And there are some people that got on board with that. And you know what we're doing? We're sitting in buildings we didn't pay for. Amen. We're, standing on, we're, we're worshiping on ground we didn't pay for. There's only about eight people here in the church that paid for any of it. And we have the opportunity, we have the blessing, we have the privilege to worship here because someone behind us sacrificed. Listen, what if Jesus doesn't return for another hundred years? What's going to be left in Sydney in a hundred years? I want there to be a Bible preaching church. I want it to be greater than it was when we came. Amen? When those people, I think of Ruby Lime, this is Sue Blackford's mom, carrying cinder blocks to lay the foundation of this building. When she was laying those cinder blocks, I bet she never dreamed what God's going to do here now. Amen? When we build this building out here, Who knows what God's going to do with that? How's your faith? How's your faith? When's the last time you invited someone to church? When's the last time you talked about that great God that you had just met in prayer that morning who's answering prayers and is, is just invigorating you spiritually? Don't be of the number who are identified by the Baptist salute. Amen? God, what are you doing next? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father.